Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. I am growing increasingly frustrated and skeptical when it comes to the online headlines, which is where I get most of my news. I mean, you follow some investigation because you want to know the motive and the details behind the crime. And so the headline reads, new details emerge. And so I click. And then I read the article only to find out that the details either aren't new or they don't really matter anyway. And then I'm chastising myself for doing it again. That is basically reading the same article that I read yesterday. Or in entertainment news, there is always someone doing a tell-all. Juicy details for the first time, unveiled. And so I click, only to discover it's not really what it turns out to be and it wasn't worth me looking into it. Sometimes I'm left even wondering what the headline has to do with the article itself that I've just read. Because the truth of the matter is, all they really want you to do is click. I suppose that's how they count uh, subscribers or readership, and by counting that, then that is how they gather advertising dollars. They're not trying to keep you informed with the news any longer. Now, I'm talking about national news, not local. But they're not trying to keep you informed of the news any longer. They're just trying to get you to read the next article. Both of the major news outlets from the left and the right have recently fired prominent people amid controversies as to whether the truth matters anymore. I haven't followed these stories, so I don't know the details. Plus, I really don't want either one of these networks telling me that they value the truth and that I should care about it. The truth is what they care about is viewership and sensationalism sells and so no need to bother verifying the facts, just get the story out there as quickly as possible so they can be the first to break it. And the story is always slanted. If you don't believe that your choice of national news is slanted, then they've done a very good job of convincing you. Some years ago, we fought the uh, fight against the encroaching idea that there is no such thing as absolute truth. And in that fight, I think we held truth to the true to the fact that there is in fact truth. But now my concern is that while we believe in truth, we simply don't know what it is anymore because we don't know the facts and we don't even know where to get them. That of course doesn't stop many people from thinking that they do and jumping to conclusions as a result. The first time we hear a story, we are ready to post a comment or fire off a tweet with what should have happened or what should happen to those involved in whatever the story is. Never mind that we weren't there or that we've only heard one side of the story or that we're not an expert in whatever the issue at hand is. We know what needs to be done or what should have been done. And as a result, others need to know that we know. And the fact that we have to communicate with limited number of words on Twitter 
which is where many do get the majority of their news only adds to the problem. But before we're so critical of our society and whether or not they are giving us the truth when they give us the news, perhaps we need to examine our own speech. Do we say what we mean? Do we do what we say? Do we tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Or do we twist the truth for our own advantage? The fact that we need oaths and contracts and binding agreements and promises give an answer to that question. No deals are struck with a handshake any longer. After all, who would trust anybody to follow through? And therefore, we need it in black and white, signed and perhaps even notarized. We have a saying, talk is cheap. And what that means is it is easy to say something, but it is much harder to actually follow through and do that which you say you're going to do. Today, we are going to continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount, thinking about our words. Are we truthful people? Can our words be counted on as the truth? And can we be counted on to follow through on that which we say we will do? Or is our talk cheap? That's our title from Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Matthew 5, 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now you notice that we have the same formula that we've had the last three weeks. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. So before we can dive into the explanation and the application that Jesus gives on this particular topic, we have to figure out, especially from that first verse, what they believed about what was said of old. And so from verse 33, we start with do what you say. Now, the reference here is not as easy to track down as it has been in those other three weeks. Two of those three have come from the Ten Commandments, and the other one came from a specific text from Deuteronomy chapter 24. But this time, verse 33 is not an exact quotation of any one particular verse in the Old Testament. Rather, it's sort of a compilation that gets to the gist of a number of passages. Passages that you can find in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy along with perhaps both the third and the ninth of the Ten Commandments, which refer to taking the name of the Lord in vain and bearing false witness. And let's also be honest enough at first glance to say, I mean, this really doesn't seem as important as the issues we've dealt with over the last few weeks. I mean, we've dealt with murder and hatred. We've dealt with lust and adultery We've dealt with marriage and divorce and remarriage. And now we come to a passage of scripture that's suddenly talking about what we say and do. It just doesn't seem to rise to the same level of importance. 
but I didn't put it there. Jesus did. And so it's not up to me to decide that this particular issue is not as important as the ones that have preceded or the ones that will go after this. Instead, it's up to us to understand what is being said and apply it to our lives. And to that end, let me say what it is not first, because what it is not is often what people think it is. And because they conclude that that's what it is, they come to the conclusion that they really have no issue with this particular problem. So what it is not is this. Jesus is not addressing profanity here. He is not talking about using the name of God in some kind of exclamation or expression. I am not saying that's okay to do. It is not. And it honestly makes no sense to me, but that is not what these verses are dealing with. So lest you think, well, I haven't cussed this week using the name of God, therefore this passage does not apply to me, and you can breathe a sigh of relief and not pay attention, I'm telling you at the outset, that is not what these verses are about. The issue is much deeper and much harder, and as we've seen in previous weeks, as we understand the breadth of it, we will come to the conclusion that all of us have violated these verses as well. Now, just a quick reminder that we are still dealing with heart issues. This is not just about words we say or don't say. It's not just about what comes out of our mouth because the Bible also says what comes out of the mouth is what is in the heart. From the heart, the mouth speaks. So all of this sermon is dealing with heart issues. Now, the making of oaths and vows was a common practice in biblical days. An oath was the invoking of God or a sacred object to bolster somebody's word or a promise. A vow, on the other hand, was a solemn promise to God that I would perform some sort of action or a vow between individuals that was sometimes backed up by an oath before God. Now, in the rest of this sermon, we're just going to sort of blend these two together, whether you're talking about vows or oaths. Now, the gist of the original commands was not that oaths should not be taken, but that when they were taken, they should not be taken lightly. If you swear by an oath over anything, and then you do it over everything, that is, if oaths become so common that you're swearing all the time, then they really don't mean much at all. But when an oath was taken over a serious matter, then it was to be taken seriously and thus it was to be fulfilled. In one sense, this was also a concession, just like we saw last week with divorce. This is also a concession to the fact that our word is not always true. And so therefore, it sometimes needs to be backed up by a promise. And so these oaths or vows were designed to reinforce our word and assure that what we say we were going to do, we are actually going to do. For example, why does a child ask a parent for a promise? That is, when you say to your child, if you will do your homework, if you'll clean your room, then I will take you out for ice cream. Why does the child oftentimes then say, you promise? Because the child knows that in the past, you've not always done what you said you were going to do. And as a result, they are seeking some assurance that indeed, if they do do their homework, then you will in fact take them out 
for ice cream. And these simple words from the mouth of a child, you promise, tells us that we do have an issue with this. So once again, oaths and vows are not inherently wrong. We'll talk more on that shortly. But when an oath or a vow was made, it was to be taken seriously and fulfilled. Let me give you a biblical example of this very thing. It comes from Joshua chapter 9. This is the very early stages of the Israelites conquering the promised land. And at this point in the process, things have gone well. In fact, they've gone so very well that the portions of the promised land that have not yet been conquered have been hearing reports about how the Israelites were conquering other portions, and so they're all afraid. They know that their time is coming. So the Gibeonites, who were a local people who lived within that yet-to-be-conquered area of the promised land, decided to come up with a plan. They would go to the Israelites and plead for their life. And they would say to the Israelites, if you just make us your slaves and let us live... That's fine with us. So they want to strike a bargain. But in order to do that, they lie. They deceive. They act like they have come from a long ways away. They use old, worn-out sacks. They use torn and mended wineskins, worn-out clothes and patched sandals. And the bread they carry with them is dried and crumbled. And with all of that, they come to Joshua and they say, What I mentioned earlier, can we just be your slaves rather than die? And Joshua agrees. They make a covenant with the leaders of Israel, and the leaders of Israel swear to this covenant with an oath. And when that deception is found out, and they realize the Gibeonites were not from a distant land, but were from within the promised land, and were part of the people that God had said to conquer... The people of Israel are mad at the leadership and they cry out to the leadership. But here's what the leadership says. We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. In other words, they say we've made an oath. And even though that oath was made on the basis of lies, we are going to fulfill that oath because we made that oath before God. So the original commands basically boil down to Do you do what you say? And that still holds true today. If you tell someone you're going to be somewhere at a certain time, you need to be there. If you tell someone you're going to attend some event, you need to go, even if a better option becomes available. Now, obviously, things do come up that do prevent us from fulfilling our word at time. But in such cases, we simply need to be honest and explain the situation. After all, again, this is a matter of the heart. It is a matter of character and integrity, not just about doing what we say. And if you happen to have already read this month's newsletter, you know that I wrote about the fact that we often forget about things. And so we are all going to forget about things at times. None of us are batting a thousand when it comes to this category. So when you do forget, just own up to it. Tell the person you did. You meant to come, but you forgot. And they are likely to forgive you because they have done the same thing. So first of all, we're seeing here that we need to do what we say. Well, from the next three verses, we we learn that we need to say what we mean. Now, these next verses are going to seem like a contradiction to that which I've already said. Because I've already said that oaths and vows were not prohibited, 
either then or now. And yet it seems like Jesus says in verse 34 that all oaths are to be prohibited and no oath is to be made. But when we dig a little deeper, I think we'll understand what's going on here. Do you do what you say? But also, you need to make sure that your words say what you mean. Don't try to get out of something or deceive someone else with some sort of clever terminology. Now, there have always been groups that have taken these verses as a strict prohibition against any kind of oath or vow making. Groups like the Anabaptists or the Quakers or the Moravians, just to name a few that you may have heard of. And as a result, they have concluded that such things as an oath of allegiance to a nation is not biblical. So you can't say the Pledge of Allegiance. That's not appropriate for Christians, they say. Likewise, the taking of oaths in court, the swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. If we believe that, then military service would also be uh, against Christianity, not just because of the possible violence that might come, but because of the swearing of an oath in order to serve your country. So in that case, most all of public service would be off limits, including such things as civic jobs where oaths are required and jury duty. But men like Luther and Calvin came along and they said that there was a difference between public speech and private speech. They said it's okay to make oaths in a public speech because after all, you're dealing with a sinful non-Christian society and at times we have to make a vow or an oath publicly in order to, to back up our word in a world full of falsehoods. But in private speech, that is between me and you, we ought not to have to make oaths because we ought to know one another as fellow believers, as men and women of our word. More on that in the last point. But the main reason I know this is not a strict and absolute prohibition against all oaths is because the Bible uses oaths, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and even God himself takes oaths. Let me give you a few examples. We know that Paul took a Nazarite vow. He's not condemned or criticized for that in the scripture. Furthermore, last week we talked about our marriage vows and how serious we are to take those and how serious it is when we break them. We make our vows before God and before the witness that we've, witnesses that we've invited to our ceremony and we confirm those vows and promises with the exchanging of rings. So if this is an absolute prohibition against any oath or any vow, then when you stood before the marriage altar and made those vows with your spouse, then you would have been breaking these particular verses. In our study of the book of Hebrews this past week and previous weeks, we've actually read that God had made some oaths. It said he could not swear by anything or anyone greater than himself, and so he swore by himself. He confirmed a promise to Israel with an oath, an oath that was backed by his own character. God swore to Abraham that he would bless him with descendants. God swore to Noah that he would never again flood the earth. God made such promises not because his credibility was in danger, but to confirm our faith. God understands and knows that we live in a world that needs assurances. Because we have learned to be skeptical and doubtful, he confirms even his promises sometimes by swearing an oath. 
a vow that he is going to fulfill the promises that he makes to us. So again, this is not an absolute ban on any and all oaths. So what is going on here? Well, for one thing, it had become very common to make oaths, and as a result, it had become very flippant and commonplace. It was no longer about serious commitments. It was used frivolously in everyday life. But more importantly, oaths had come to be used for the opposite of what they were intended for. An oath was intended to back up someone's word, but it had actually been used to restrain, not to restrain lying and falsehood and to promote the truth, but they were actually using oaths to, to deceive. A system had grown into place whereby an oath was only as good as the object upon with the, which the oath was made. So you might swear by one thing and it was valid. You might swear by another and it was not. And that's what these examples in verses 34 through 36 are talking about here. One oath being valid and another not. Well, like we did last week, let's go to another passage of Scripture that is very uh, similar, but it gives us a little more explanation. This is in Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 and following. So I know you still have your Bibles open, and you're going to find Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 and following. This is Jesus talking to the scribes and Pharisees. This is that passage of Scripture where he's issuing multiple woes. And he says in verse 16, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. See how it's a matter of the object? If you swear by one thing, it's valid. You swear by something else, it's not. And so the first example is you swear by the temple. It doesn't really matter. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, then you've got to fulfill your vow. Verse 17, you blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the the temple that has made the gold sacred, sacred? Or you say, if someone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So that gives you a little example of how they they were just manipulating the system. They were twisting it to say one thing was valid and another thing was not. Most people knew better than to swear by God, though people don't seem to know that today. And so rather than swear by God, they picked sacred objects that were sacred rather than risk the wrath of God. In modern language, sometimes we say something like, I swear on my mother's grave. I don't know exactly what that's supposed to mean other than I suppose you are uh, drawing on your mother's uh, testimony, though she has passed, and you're saying she will testify to my good name. I've never used that phrase outside of this sermon And it certainly makes no sense to me. I tried to do a Google search this week on common swear phrases. But as you might expect, I did not get the results I was looking for. And so I deleted my search history and moved on with the sermon. But the point is, some vows were deemed to be more binding than others, leaving the whole system a web of deceit. So back now to our original verses. The point of these examples of heaven, earth, Jerusalem, or even your own head is the same. 
all of them in some way point back to God. So they cannot be used as lesser vows that can be broken because God is the creator and sustainer of all. He is the ruler of heaven and earth and all that is within it, so it all points back to him. Now, I know you might think that you found a loophole here. Yes, but now we can make one hair black and one hair white if we so choose. And yes, this is a prohibition against coloring your hair. So some of you sitting here this morning are in fact living in open sin, even as I speak. I'm kidding, of course, though some interpreters did view this as a rule against dyeing hair. That is not what it is. But while we can and do change our hair color, and there's nothing wrong with that, and while we can do many, many more colors than just black and white, and no, we cannot create our own hair no matter what the commercials say, and we certainly can't create our own hair to be whatever color we want. We can change it on the outside, but we can't grow hair to be whatever we want because all of it points back to God as the creator of all things. And therefore, any oath is an oath that is valid because we cannot minimize it and seek to get away with not fulfilling it just because we swear by a lesser object. So don't try to get out of a vow or an oath or a promise by some minor technicality. Do what you say and say what you mean. And then the final verse, verse 37, is somewhat of a summary and reminds us of the simple truth to simply tell the truth. Do what you say, say what you mean, and tell the truth. Now, while that is a simple statement, it is difficult for us to consistently apply, as this whole Sermon on the Mount is, of course, proving to be. So I remind you that we cannot apply this sermon without help, and that help comes from the Holy Spirit. So the whole point of this section is that as believers, we are to be men and women of our word, telling the truth even when it's difficult, and fulfilling our promises even if it turns out to be inconvenient. So much so that over time, people don't have to ask us, do you promise? People don't have to wonder whether we're lying or exaggerating because they've come to trust that our word is our bond. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to tell everything we know all the time. Sometimes it's best just to be quiet. It also doesn't mean that we speak regardless of how it will impact others and with no love on our part. You know people like that who are always quick to chime in with their criticism because they have to speak their mind whether they do it in love or not. And if you dare question them about something they've said, then they're going to get spiritual on you and say, well, we're supposed to tell the truth and that's what I'm doing, irregardless of the outcome. But speaking the truth in love is a biblical phrase that Paul uses in the book of Ephesians and it means that sometimes we need to be quiet and sometimes we need to say hard things even to those who don't want to hear them. Now, I don't mean in trivial matters. Does this dress make me look fat? I mean, there's not the time to get spiritual and say, honey, I got to be honest with you because the scripture tells me to. And then we just go off about how she really looks. That's probably not wise. But it does mean that 
where sin is involved or poor choices are being made or apathy is setting in in the life of someone that we love, withholding the truth is not always the right thing to do. I know we try to do it to spare someone's feelings, but it's actually sometimes not, not love at all. You are probably willing to confront your children with hard truths. And you confront them with hard truths because you love them. And sometimes we need to do that with fellow believers as well because staying silent can come across as a communication of approval when in fact you may not approve at all. Now there's always danger on both sides here. That is those who never speak up and because they don't want to deal with difficult truths or those who are always willing to and can't wait to do so and think it's their duty to always do it in everyone's life. Frankly, you need to know that you have to earn such a right by having a friendship and a relationship with a person before you try to speak truth into their life. Plus, it does take discernment, something that I've said several times is sorely lacking in much of the Christian life today. Telling the truth also means we follow through on our commitments. We strive to keep our promises. Now, again, like I said in the newsletter, sometimes we do forget and fail to show up or fail to follow through. That isn't a lack of integrity. That's simply a sign of busyness or aging or both. But what I'm talking about is intentionally going back on your word because you no longer feel like doing what you've committed to do or because something better has come along. And we often criticize the younger generations for being fickle in their commitments because they won't commit until they know who else has committed. Who's going is one of the early questions they ask because they don't want to sign up until they know who's going. Or they easily back out of their commitments when something else comes along, a, a better option at the last minute. But I don't think it's just the younger generations that struggle with this. It's an issue across generational lines because we often think only of ourselves first. And what I want to do today may not be what I committed to do yesterday. And so it's very tempting to choose what I want in the moment rather than what I've agreed to in the past. Telling the truth builds trust. And trust is essential for the, for the followers of Christ and his disciples to share the gospel with others. I mean, if they can't rely on what we say, are they going to listen when we tell them that we have some good news to share with them? And maybe this is yet one of many reasons why we don't share the good news with people. Because we haven't been men and, women, men and women of our word, and therefore, because of a lack of trust in previous dealings, we keep quiet. Now, we said earlier that the issue here was they were deciding an oath or a vow based on the object upon which it was taken. That is, some was binding and some was not. Are you swearing by the temple or the gold of the temple? But the truth is, an oath is only as good, not as the object, but as the person that is making the oath. And that is why we must fulfill the vows we make. Because we need to be men and women of integrity and character so that people can trust our word. And that's what this example is about. This is not about cussing. It's not about don't use the phrase, I swear to God, though I don't think that's a good phrase to use. It is about something much deeper than that. And again, this flows from the heart because out of the mouth, the abundance of the heart speaks. Now, we've not talked about all the negative things when it comes to our speech. We've not talked about such things as lying or exaggeration or criticism or put downs. 
You can find James if you want to study that. In the little book of James, five chapters long, every chapter of those five chapters, James in some way deals with sins of the tongue. And he does so on several occasions with illustrations that you surely will remember. But we haven't talked about all that negative stuff because the truth of the matter is, if we follow the positive side, we won't have room for the negative side. That is, if we do what we say and say what we mean and tell the truth, then we won't be worried about lying and deceiving and criticism and all these other things. A famous movie from years ago entitled A Few Good Men, I'm sure some of you have seen, starred Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. And they were both military. Tom Cruise was a military lawyer. And Jack Nicholson was on trial for an order that he had uh, given, an order that was against military regulations. And Cruz was trying to get him to admit that he had given the order, but it was a very delicate situation because he had to get him to admit it without actually accusing him of it for fear that he himself might get court-martialed if he accused him. And so after another uh, heated exchange of words, Nicholson from the witness stand issues the dramatic line of the movie that is still very famous. Cruz yells out, I want the truth. And Nicholson says, you can't handle the truth. And then they go on to have, he goes on to have a much more heated statement, a monologue about uh, all that had happened and he admits it. The truth might be difficult to handle. It might be easier to tell lies or break promises, but as followers of the one who said, I am the truth, we don't have that option. We are to be men and women of integrity, and a large part of that deals with our speech. That is that we do what we say, say what we mean, and tell the truth. Talk is cheap. Anybody can make a vow. Anybody can state a promise or take an oath. But do we follow through and actually do what we say? Now, I'm not asking you to do a better job with your calendar so that you never miss an appointment in the future. I am not suggesting that honesty is the best policy, although it indeed is. I am saying this issue goes much deeper than that. We've seen throughout this sermon that Jesus is dealing with the heart, not just our outward actions. So merely cleaning up or changing external acts is not the righteousness that he's calling for. Remember, the Pharisees had done that, and Jesus says to us, our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees if we are to be part of the kingdom of God. So what that means is we need a heart change. We need a heart transplant, and that can only come through the grace of God. It's what we call salvation or conversion, and yet that's just the first step, which most of you have taken, but it is indeed just the beginning. Sanctification, then, is the ongoing work of God whereby he continues to make us more like him as we continually rely and trust upon him. So while we've talked about doing what we say and saying what we mean and telling the truth, the only way to make serious progress on this path is to prioritize our relationship with God. This has not been a self-help seminar, and I hope you didn't see it as such. This is yet another reminder that we can't possibly live in accordance with this Sermon on the Mount without some serious help from God. And that help is indeed available when we not just pray a prayer and be converted, 
But when we daily rely and trust upon God, prioritizing our relationship with him, then he gives us the strength and the will to do what we say and say what we mean and tell the truth. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for your word once again, for the opportunity we have to study it together and to apply it to our hearts and lives. And Lord, we, uh, we do want to be people of our word, not primarily so that we are thought well of, but because we are your representatives. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And therefore, we need to be men and women of integrity and character. And so I pray that, that you would continually change our hearts, giving us a desire to so follow you that we will tell the truth, even when it's difficult, that we will do what we say even when it is inconvenient, and we will say what we mean because that's simply what integrity and character does from the heart. But ultimately, we pray that we would rely upon you because none of this can happen without continual reliance upon the Holy Spirit of God. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.